Father, we're grateful this morning that we are, we are covered, that we have Christ's righteousness and that we stand before you not on our own because of our own virtues. Uh, we stand before you acceptable because of Christ and because of all that he's done. This is proof that you have loved us and we're grateful that you've loved us and you've shown your love for us in such an extraordinary way so that we might know what it means to be forgiven, so that we might know what it means to be restored and to have a right relationship with you. We would ask now, and I do ask, that you would use the Holy Spirit, and you would use your word, you would use the proclamation of your word in the life of your people uh, to help us to know Christ better and to love him uh, more faithfully, that we would be in greater awe even uh, at your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard the saying, the statement, sometimes the command, you need to have your priorities straight. Many a coach, many a parent, many a leader, many a boss, many a friend has said, you need to have your priorities straight. Or maybe a little bit edgier. Pat, you need to get your priorities straight. Most of the time, we don't like to hear it. Because most of the time, if we need to get our priorities straight, it's because somehow our priorities aren't straight. But is it true? It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that we have to have priorities. It's absolutely true that we have to have priorities in order. We need to straighten them out because why? There's so many things to do. There's so many things to do that are a waste. There are so many things to do that are good. There's so many things to do that if we don't have our priorities straight, we're not going to get anything done because while there's so many things, there's so little time. Priorities are super important. And so we say, that's right, I need to have priorities. I need to know what they are. I need to set my priorities. But that creates another problem. If you have priorities and you set your priorities, you say, this is my number one priority right now at this phase in my life, let's say. If you do that, by necessity, necessarily, you are going to say no to other things. You, you can't have two, two number one priorities, right? It's a, it's a contradiction. If you have a number one priority in your life, you can't have another one. And then you, if you have some top priorities, well, all of those other things, even if they're good things, are not top priorities. And you say, is, is this a leadership seminar, team building, business, uh, personal management? No, no, no. I've spent my fair share of time at the College of Business at that unmentionable school that we can't talk about on Sundays like this. It's in Lincoln, but we don't talk about it because of yesterday. Anyway, <laughs> I've spent my fair share of time in Richards Hall College of Business. This is the church. This isn't the College of Business. And yet the church has priorities. The church has an ultimate priority. And if we're going to, to, to be faithful with the ultimate priority, then we're going to have to say no to other priorities. We're going to have to manage, right? Just like you have to have personal management skills to have your priorities straight and in order. The church has to have some management going on to have our priority be priority number one. Um, not only that, we have to work together as a team if we're going to do this. Because here's the thing. Not only are we called to preach Christ, resolvedly so, number one priority, if we're following Paul's example of 1 Corinthians 2.2 and elsewhere. We talked about that last Sunday at length. 
Not only are we going to have that as our number one priority and, and we're going to resolve ourselves, good priority word. The reality is there are other things that are important, right? There are other things in the Bible that, that the church is supposed to be caring about and involved with. And so what we need to do is we need to, 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 to manage those things. Uh, we, we need to have priority number one, and yet we can't forget about these other priorities. How about this? Proclaiming Christ, reconciliation between rebels and God, uh, proclaiming the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done to be our mediator. When we do that and we have that as our ultimate priority and we're faithfully declaring the good news of salvation in Christ and we're telling our friends and our family and our enemies and our adversaries about the good news of what it means to, to, to be reconciled to God based upon what Jesus has done. When we do that, produces fruit, doesn't it? People become believers and people become part of the church and then the church grows and, and there's complications there because then we're, as we're part of the church, uh, we're, we're to, to do the one another's. And that's not always easy and now we've got all that going on in the life of the church and there, there are needs within the life of the church and that gospel proclamation produces fruit which then creates other needs we might lose sight of what our priority is. We might need some help. We might need to think this through. How are we going to do this? We've got to keep preaching Christ and have that be our one resolve. And yet, that proclamation creates good things, but it makes it complicated, easily distracted. That brings us to our subject today. We're going to talk about deacons, deacons in the life of the church. We're going to talk about two passages, from two passages, Acts chapter 6 and 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you have a Bible, you can find Acts 6, you can find 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to talk about deacons today because deacons, the word deacon just means servant. Um, in the New Testament, there's an office of deacon. Um, it's God in his perfect wisdom gives um, deacons to the church, uh, servants to the church who end up being model servants. And, and their ministry, their service complements what we're doing as far as gospel proclamation by helping us to make sure that we can keep doing that and keep that as priority number one while taking care of these other needs that are real needs that come as a result of the gospel and the proclamation of the gospel. So uh, we're going to talk about the gospel today as it would relate to priority number one, but as it would relate to also taking care of things that come as a result of gospel proclamation. So um, Acts 6 is our passage. Just to give you a little bit um, working definition before we jump in, uh, a deacon, deacon means servant. Um, everyone, everyone who's a Christian is called to serve in light of Ephesians chapter 4. So we're all to, to, to be deacons, let's say lowercase d, deacons. Or as I like to say, we're all called to deke, okay? Uh, you're supposed, if you're a Christian, you deke, okay? And if I'm a Christian, I deke because if you're in the body of Christ, Ephesians 4 says, we're all to serve, we're all to do ministry that builds up the body of Christ. And yet at the same time, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3 has those who are Christians who meet certain qualifications, and then they have an official capacity in the life of the church, and he calls them deacons. And so that's why we say there are deacons, and there are deacons. There are lowercase d deacons, all of us, and then there are model servants, model deacons, if you will, that we look to, for example, 
We look to for to, to provide some some help with the teamwork, with the management of it all. We'll call those deacons capital D. They hold that official office. They meet those qualifications. So I can look at that deacon and say, I need to serve as a Christian. I want to try to be like that person. So big picture is we're called to preach Christ. Priority number one, to not be distracted. Real needs in the body really need to be dealt with and taken care of. And we can do both if we... Remember the gospel's priority number one, and we're going to have deacons coming alongside and helping us help each other as we have needs so we're not distracted. So I'm excited about this because we're going to look at these passages, and then I'm going to ask 10 of our deacon candidates, um, individuals that we believe meet the qualifications, um, to come up here so you can know who they are if you don't already, so you can join us in praying for them. Uh, and then we'll, mid-month uh, October, make a final decision. They've already gone through a lot of the process. Pretty much everything's already gone through. But we want to say, and I am saying, I want you to pray as we make those final decisions. Um, I want you to be involved in that. So that's where we're headed. Ready to go? This is a longer introduction than some sermons. So I promise it'll be shorter than next, uh, last week. I was reminded how long it was last week. I was reminded multiple times. Um, enough of that. Let's go ahead and jump in here. Um, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days, read, Jesus has not only resurrected, He's ascended and He has commissioned His disciples, He's commissioned believers to, to with the great commission. Preach the good news about me. Make disciples of all different kinds of people, all nations in those days. The church is launched and eager and things are exciting and happening because Christ is being preached and people are repenting and people are trusting in Christ and all this extraordinary gospel work is going on. In those days when the disciples were increasing in number, See, more and more people are becoming Christians. This is an amazing thing going on. And then do notice what it says as it comes to a crashing halt. A complaint. I just had to stop there. I wrote in my notes, gotta love complaining. Sarcasm. Isn't it interesting? I don't want to get totally off track, but don't be that guy. Don't be that gal. Oh, gospel, awesome. Look what's going on. I've got a complaint. It's just like, what are you, this is the good news about redemption in Christ. This is the most amazing thing on the planet. They're turning the world upside down. I have a question. It's not really a question. It's a comment, which is a complaint. You're going, oh, no. Now, there are legitimate complaints and illegitimate complaints. This seems like a legitimate complaint, but it was an opportunity for me to make my point. So I I apologize. I apologize. Let's keep going. A complaint arose by the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the, day, in, daily, in the daily distribution. That looks like a legitimate complaint. People are coming to know Christ, different kinds of people, different backgrounds, and real needs in that believing community aren't being met. That's what's going on there. Seems like a legitimate complaint. Now here we are at, uh, on the brink of 
derailing priority number one. Resolve number one. We're either going to go there or we're going to have another good, well-thought-out plan that's going to involve management and teamwork so that we don't lose sight of what we're all about. So it's a great text for that reason. Let's keep moving. It says in verse 2, And the twelve, that would be the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples. Disciple is a synonym for Christian at this point in time. They won't be called Christians. I think it's until Acts 11. But it's a follower, a learner. It's another way of saying Christian. He's not talking about the twelve. The twelve are the unique disciples, the, the apostles. He's talking disciples in general. The followers of Jesus in general. So what happens is, the full number of the disciples, all of the believers are, are summoned. They're gathered together. In, and then it says, crucial in verse 2, I love this. And said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I want that to just be etched in my mind and etched in your mind. It's not right that we should stop preaching the Word of God. In our context, as he will, as he's already said and as he will say, that's another way of saying preaching Christ because that's what leads to more disciples. So he doesn't say the gospel there, but he, that's what he's getting at. Preaching the Word of God specifically, that which makes disciples specifically, he's talking about the gospel. And, and it's so good that the apostles have it, have it, etched in their minds because of what Jesus said to them and the commissioning that Jesus gave them when He said, all authority has been given to Me, so you make disciples. This is command number one, priority number one. It's so good that they're committed to that still and they say it's not right. That, that, that gut level, genuine, spirit-wrought conviction about priority number one that we hear echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. I want that to rub off on you. I want it to rub off on me. I, I, want, I want to, you know, have a, have a recommittal ceremony if need be and recommit our vows by apostolic example. This is super helpful. Even if it means good things, they're, they're not going to argue, as a matter of fact, that those aren't real good things and legitimate things. Let's keep going. Verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. There, there's godliness involved there. And of wisdom, there's a practicality of it as well, whom we will appoint to this duty. Then verse 4. Again, I got my underlining um, device out again. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Again, you sense that. Clearly you do, right? That resolve, that commitment. You cannot pry our dead hands off of this. Our, our living hands off of this. This is, this is what we've been called by Jesus to do. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. Now before we move on and, and, and see that they, they kept the resolve, but they wisely made sure needs were met by enlisting others to support that cause, which is so helpful. I do want you to notice something I think is important in light of the culture we're in. Um, in verse 4 where he says, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Here's what they don't do. They don't change the terms, if you will, and redefine the helping of those in need 
as if it's priority number one? I'm not making myself very clear. To put it another way, if the preaching of the word is, is the preaching of the gospel, and I think the context demands that it is, what they don't do is then see a good need in the church and relabel that as gospel too. And then say, well, that's what we do because we're committed, because we're gospel-centric. And we're all about Christ-centered. And we're all about gospel. And so therefore, they're one and the same. The proclamation of the good news about Jesus is, is definitely gospel. And then let's redefine taking care of widows as if that's gospel too. And you know what? Yeah, we'll do that. In fact, any good idea, we're going to put the name gospel on it and legitimize the whole thing. Now, I'm saying that because that's happened in history, in America. And if it's not happening in America now, it's going to happen. Now, please... Because it's happened with social gospel, where, where now every good thing that the Bible ever describes or has talked about is now one and the same with preaching Christ and the gospel. That's not what these guys do. They do both because there needs to be both, but priority number one is still priority number one, and we don't redefine the other priorities as if they are priority number one. And if you're following me, you are awake. <laughs> And here we are. I'm so thankful for a rediscovering of Christ-centered preaching that's not new, but sometimes we've forgotten about it. I'm so thankful for a more gospel-centered kind of emphasis, but it, now it's just becoming, maybe for fear here, it's just a trend. And you just put gospel on anything and you can sell a bazillion books. Because right now it's really hip and really cool and everything is gospel this and gospel that and gospel this and gospel that. And if we do something, we're going to put the word gospel on it and then all of a sudden, I'm all for. I'm all, I, I've experienced uh, this, this freshness. I'm, I'm so committed to it. And so many of you are. Awesome. I want you to know what the gospel is. I want it to drive you. I want it I absolutely gospel-centric. But there's always that fear, that caution. Now we're just going to stick that label on everything. And we're going to lose sight of what the gospel really is. The perfect work of Jesus. That's what the gospel is. The good news. That, that Matthew chapter 1, he starts off this way and he's, by saying uh, that he came to save his people from their sins. Well, then he, and then he unfolds what that looks like. Jesus lives his, his perfect life of obedience to the law. It's all about what he does. And not only that, he goes to the cross and atones for our rebellion. And then what does he do? He rises again from the dead. And, and that's what the gospel is. And what do we do with that? We preach it. We proclaim it. We preach it to unbelievers. We preach it to believers in light of what Romans 1 and 16 says. Chapter 1, chapter 16 is what I mean. Awesome. Yes, 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 yes. But that gospel produces fruit, which we, which we shouldn't confuse with the gospel. It does produce fruit and creates other needs in the life of the church that need to be taken care of. And these smart apostles are not going to veer from priority number one, but they're also going to love the brethren, if you will, or the cistern, but that doesn't sound very good. Um, the brothers and sisters in Christ, because that needs to be done too. It absolutely needs to be done. Going to work together, keep priority number one, priority number one. All right, let's move on to verse five. And when they said, and, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. 
All of those disciples said, this is a good idea. They're, they're all so committed to priority number one, but they also know there's needs in the body. They say, this is a great idea. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Love verse 7 again. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That is super to see. Super helpful historic account of how they did the right and wise thing. Apparently, they all saw priority number one as priority number one. And that's why Stephen was willing to say, I'll serve tables. I'll do that. I get the big idea. I get the big picture. I'm on board. I'll support it. Philip, too, and these other guys whose names we can't pronounce. Um, Because they all got it. They all got the big picture. So they're all going to play their role in, in getting this done. Reminds me of Philippians chapter 1, uh, also where you've got this striving together. They so own the gospel that they're going to deal with the other issues as needing to be dealt with. But still, priority number one is priority number one. It's just a great, helpful passage for us. Just a couple of words about this, and then I have a, a hard application question for you. Not really hard, but I have an application question. Just a couple of comments about Acts 6. I think Acts 6 is a prototype passage. Um, It's the prototypical, if you want fancy, it's the prototypical deacon passage. And I say it that way because it's not talking about deacons in the exact same way as 1 Timothy 3 is. We're going to get there. Uh, In in fact, people recognize this and some people say, therefore, Acts 6 should have nothing to do with the discussion. It has nothing to do with deacons. Um, It's different than the here and now. But I think it absolutely is a passage where we can learn something about deacons. And then we move to 1 Timothy 3 and we say, you know what, this is the official office. Uh, This is the preliminary um, example, prototype. And then we've got the actual as the church matures and it comes into, uh, into a state of maturity. It does look a bit different. And I think it's important at least to acknowledge that. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, it is the word serving is used there. The deacon word is used there. Here, here's how it's different. This is important. Uh, it's different because you have apostles. We don't have apostles. Okay, that makes it different. Um, to be an, the apostles are the foundation of the church. Ephesians two twenty. In order to be a legitimate apostle, you have to see the risen Christ with your own eyes, bodily. I don't think we have apostles today, uh, so it makes it different. But but these apostles are pastoring. They're shepherding the people. Um, I'm not saying they're exactly the same, but when these guys go off the scene, the next office uh, up for bids, if you will, is pastor. These guys are functioning like pastors. It's also a little bit different because these these apostles in Acts chapter 6, they're like itinerants. I mean, they're going from place to place to place as the gospel's going out. They're moving, moving, moving. And so that that's different. Timothy's going to pastor a church at Ephesus. That allows for us to appreciate this passage, but not make everything that happens in this passage the way to do it. It would make sense that the apostles who don't know any people 
really, say, we need people with good character. You present the people you know with good character, godliness to us. I'm not going to make that the way we do it because pastors actually know people in the church and it's more of a group effort. So things like that make it, make it different. And if I've lost you, I'm sorry. I'd love to have you come back for my question. just wanted to acknowledge a couple of those things. Uh, I almost used to be the throw it out with the bathwater guy. I think there's too much to learn there about how it relates to the gospel. Uh, I think we need to have it be a prototype. Then we see its fullness in, in Ephesians chapter. Ephesians. First Timothy chapter 3 where Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Man, sometimes this is hard to straighten out. Here's my question for you. Application question. Application questions. In Acts 6, what do you think would have happened if the apostles would have said, there's a need. We'll meet it. Let's think about that. Let that ruminate a little bit in your head. What if they would have said, oh no, those those poor poor widows, and, and this could look... You know, like we're showing favoritism because some of their needs are being met and other ones are, needs aren't being met. That shows that it's, a, it's an important issue. And we're supposed to love the, the brethren and brothers and sisters. And we, we, we need to do this. What, what would have happened? Well, maybe not much. We're reading between the lines. But one thing we do know that would have happened is they would have wavered from that resolve to have the proclamation of the gospel be number one, overarching everything and anything else. Right? I'm so glad they didn't do that. I, I imagine some of the people would have liked them to do that. Right? That probably would have gone on too. Well, I can't have my needs met by anybody. Well, if some guy named Stephen, I can at least pronounce that. I prefer Stephen. But then there's Philip, and then there's the other, these other jokers. I not only don't know them, I can't even say their names. Now I'm dramatizing a little bit. I need somebody to meet my need who's an apostle. I need the guy with the microphone to come help me. Could have, could have gone there. Legitimate need? Yes. But there's this deep-seated resolve about what we do and what priority number one is that the apostles said, that's what we're going to do and we are going to love Christ enough to stick to it and love the people of Christ to make sh- enough to make sure the need is actually met. And we're going to love the lost enough to make sure we don't waver from it. And this is good and right and we can learn from this. I want to learn from this. If I'm in their shoes, I might actually like to go help meet these other needs because then everybody maybe is going to like me even more. There's going to be that temptation. This is a great test for them. Are they really going to practically see Matthew 28, 18 is true or not, where Jesus says, all authority has been given to me, and I'm going to tell you what to do. If they were to say, well, we better meet the needs because we're apostles, they would have been, maybe not blatantly, high-handedly, but they would have been saying, we don't believe Jesus is the ultimate authority, I think. So it's great to see the, the, the teamwork, uh, good, working together, everyone owning this call to gospel furthering. And if it's really priority number one, if my name is Philip, 
I'll support this because I'm committed to the bigger cause and I'm going to go serve and it's right. The other thing that wouldn't have happened, some of you might have thought of this, you wouldn't have had other faithful believers doing significant ministry. It wouldn't have been needed. So let's move on to another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. So that one's like the prototype. helps us understand a little bit, uh, maybe not exactly uh, what happens in the church, but certainly it's similar, I think. We go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is written again to Timothy by Paul the Apostle, who is pastoring a local church, chapter 1 tells us, at Ephesus. Still to have the same priority, read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. It's still gospel-esque, priority number one, absolutely In chapter 3, he talks about the overseers who are also known elsewhere as elders, who are also known elsewhere as pastors. I would see them all three as one and the same based upon usage in this book, based upon usage in the book of Acts. So in the opening verses of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, he's talking about qualifications for overseers slash elders slash pastors. Uh, Chapter 5 says that these same ones are those who are going to govern the affairs of the church. They're going to oversee the church. And so that's, that's what they do. I don't want to say they're the new apostles, but now they're the ones who've been given that, that charge. That's why Paul says to Timothy, preach the word in 2 Timothy 4. Your priority. I'm passing the baton as I go off the scene. This is what pastors do. But then complementing the first seven verses of chapter 3, we have verses 8 and following. We've got this team again. We've got these partners in ministry, if you will. Those who are going to lead in service. Those who are going to be model servants. So the church at Ephesus can still be resolved, gospel, 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 but how do we also deal with and lovingly care for that which the gospel produces? Lives in the body. I'm so glad I'm a preacher. I get so excited about this stuff. I don't know how I could sit where you're sitting. I would just be, I would be, I would be a problem. Um... I'm also excited about this because I am thankful that Omaha Bible Church, I think, is more passionate about the gospel than maybe Omaha Bible Church has ever been. And I want us to have kind of an Acts 6 epiphany moment because I think we need one. I'll be at the front of the line. I need one. Because it's promote, promote, defend too, because that's what you do with the gospel. And we, we were all about this and you lose sight of these other needs that are real needs. And if we don't have a good team of deacons helping, we're not going to be as effective at the gospel promotion. So this one's coming for me as far as pastor's heart, not so much theory. Um, life at Omaha Bible Church. How about this? To the degree that we can have a more, more faithful, um, well-thought-out deacon ministry, I think that's just going to only help promote and further a good concerted effort for Omaha Bible Church to have all the more of a gospel-promoting kind of ministry. And that makes me lick my spiritual chops. Um, Never said that before. That was kind of weird to say. (laughs) Uh, What do people do who preach from a manuscript? 
They probably don't get themselves as much trouble as I do, but I'm just like, come on. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 8 says, Deacons likewise. So he's expecting us to remember the first seven verses where he talked about overseers and they meet qualifications. Deacons likewise, these official servants likewise, must be dignified. A general statement about character. Okay, It was similar to elders uh, also. They've got to be dignified. And I think that that is the broad statement, the general catch-all statement, and then he's going to elaborate on it what he means by that. But generally, you have to say, if you're going to be a deacon, and we're going to say, uh, Christians, you all need to deke, follow this example. You need to be a decent example. You need to be dignified. Then it says, not double-tongued. Well, that's part of what dignified means. If you're dignified, you have decent character, you're not double-tongued. You don't say one thing to some one person and then say something else to someone else. You have consistency in what you say and in your conduct, even showing in what you say. Not addicted to much wine. Some of your translations say probably not a drunkard. That wouldn't be dignified. Wouldn't have self-control. Clear thinking to lead in service. Not addicted to much wine. Not greedy for dishonest gain. Ministry is not about money. You, You have good ethics even in your dealings with money. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's worthy of pausing uh, for several moments. Starting with something that's not altogether, well, it's related, but I just, every opportunity I get to remind you that Christianity and Christians are those who embrace the faith, I take opportunity. With the article, we don't just have a faith. We hold to the faith. Jude says, the once and for all delivered to the saints faith. We're talking about Christians, and these deacons need to embrace this. We believe in a, uh, technical theologians would say, we believe in an objective body of Christian doctrine, teachings. Okay, so, so here we are, um, when we say faith in our culture, usually it's your subjective feeling experience about Higher powers. Biblical Christianity, though we want to have experience involved, is our experience with the faith. Because it's tied to the historic work of Jesus. So a deacon needs to know the faith. They need to know the truth about Jesus. They need to know the truth about God. It doesn't mean they're, they're uber-duber, super-expert theologians. Elders are supposed to be that. If we look at the qualifications for elders, overseers, pastors, and also in Titus, they need to know sound doctrine. They need to know the faith so well that they can not only teach it, which is not a qualification for deacon. They know it so well they can teach it and, Titus says, defend it. They really need to know it. And that is one of the big distinctions, by the way, between elders, overseers, pastors, all the same, and deacons. Well, theirs is a preaching ministry of preaching the word proclamation defending gospel deacons support that but it doesn't say well so they just need to be good managers good team players no they do need to hold to the faith theology is important for deacons in a different sense but it's important and isn't it interesting 
that it says they must hold the mystery of the faith. Mystery is often used just in relationship with the gospel, something that not everybody knows, something that hasn't always been made known in its fullness. So he's talking about the gospel, the mystery of the faith. But look where it says, with a clear conscience. So if we're going to have deacons at Omaha Bible Church, they need to hold to the faith. So we, are, we, we have a component of theology where we, we examine their theological convictions. We want to do that. Do they line up with the faith? But then also they hold to the faith with a sincere conscience. That, that could be one of two things, and I, I wouldn't die on either hill. They, 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 they themselves actually believe this. They're not just signing off could also mean, and many think it does mean this, that there is a complementariness. There is a, there's a consistency between what they say they believe doctrinally and how they're trying to live their life. Character. As we've said before, no one lives the gospel. That's absolutely impossible. Jesus lived the gospel because he was perfect. Perfect character. But, but as Christians, and deacons are supposed to be models, they're, they're seeking to, yes, say they believe about the, the truth about the work of Christ and that Jesus gave His Spirit and, and, and we, we've been born anew by, by the power of the Spirit and we're not spiritually dead anymore and that means we have the fruit of the Spirit. And so they're, they're, they're trying to live like that in a way that complements, not utterly contradicts. So we're looking for character. Theological conviction? Yeah. Complementary character? Yeah. It needs to be the case. We're looking for that. Perfect people? No, because then only Jesus would be a deacon. Um, then he says in verse 10, and let them also be tested first. So we've got time, circumstances, leads to, well, they've been tested. They've been, t- they've been examined. Some people do great until something awesome happens in their life. Sadly, most of us know people who profess to be Christians. Seem like they live a pretty, good, pretty godly life and then something circumstantially wonderful happens in their life. They're not very faithful. We also know people who profess to be Christians and awful things happen in their life circumstantially. And their service to Christ is derailed. People who are going to be examples for the rest of us should be people who are first tested. Been Christians long enough? Faced good? Faced bad? Are they perfect? No, but they love Christ and they're pursuing Christ. And that's what we want. And by the way, these qualifications... On a certain level, are, 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 these are all things. These are things we're all supposed to pursue. Um, this is not for the uber duber super Christians. These are all things we pursue, and yet here are people that that could be examples, models. If I say, "Show me what it means to live my Christian life in the body of Christ," you should be able to say to me, "Look at this individual. Follow their example." They're not perfect, but as they follow Christ, there's a real-life example for you you can actually follow. That's, that's what he's getting at, no doubt. They're in positions of leadership. This is some kind of office, something official. That's why there are qualifications. 
Then it says, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. We could take that out of context and say, oh, once they're sinless, um, they're deacons. Who would like to be first? (laughs) How long have you been humble? (laughs) But if we keep that word, I mean, you can make the Bible say anything, and even with word studies, you can be very dangerous. Guess what it means in Greek? Blameless. (laughs) There's not some hidden nuance. But meaning comes from context. Not just of our passage, but the whole. Only one person who's ever walked planet earth is sinless, blameless, and that would be Jesus. But do they have proven character? Are they tested? Fruit of the Spirit? Do they meet these qualifications? Well, on that level, we we interpret it in context. They're, They're blameless. Something extraordinary as far as God has worked through His Spirit, and we say, yep, that, that would be a good one. Then verse 11 says, their wives likewise must be dignified. Uh, I think, again, that's that broad general category. There's good character there. Not slanderers. One way to show character is with what somebody says, what they say about other people. Do they have self-control there? Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Uh, but sober-minded, there, there's a... a, a certain measure of seriousness, because life is serious. Faithful in all things. Again, a lot like that statement of her husband uh, regarding blameless. It's proven character. Read it in context. Verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. So committed to his wife. Characteristically committed to his wife. Um, We might say, like Ephesians 5 would talk about, he has left his family and he has cleaved to his wife. He's acted that way. He's acted like a Christian man in relationship to his wife. Committed to her. Managing their children and their own households well. Well, part of that, that's important because we're going to have them manage the affairs of the church, if you will, just like elders are overseeing managing on another level. They're going to manage the needs. And if they they can't manage needs in their own home, how are they going to manage needs in the church? Perfect parent? No, because there's no such thing. Raise their voice of their kids once? Not qualified? Nobody's qualified. Maybe bad parents who don't talk. I, I mean, I don't know. Looking for character. Time. Testing. There it is. The, the home is a microcosm. Things in the church aren't going to be perfect either. Messy sometimes. Very messy sometimes. Can, can they manage the mess? Got to be able to do that. By the way, if every family and every kid just, you know, every, everything was perfectly in order, and I'm not saying they shouldn't be in order, but if it was perfectly in order, uh, bring a deacon on like that and they wouldn't know what to do in the life of the church because that's not how the church is. got to be able to do that isn't it funny how we read that sometimes it's, you know so saintly well the church and everything is wonderful and awesome so you'd better have a wonderful and awesome uh, family and everything better be just exactly right because otherwise you won't know how to do anything in the church which is exactly right and we go I don't think so 
If you have three kids, you have three, you know, spiritual vipers in your house. Unless they sovereignly are born again by the power of the Spirit, how do you manage? Uh, what kind of snake handler are you? <laughs> how, do you how do you manage this? Self-centered, self-centered, self-centered. Oh, and by the way, you're struggling with your self-centeredness too. And if you're married, you happen to be married to another self-centered person. How are you managing this? And if you have the Spirit of God in you, yeah, obviously that's a qualification. If you're holding to the faith, you, you're still struggling. How do you do that? And that's going to be a good test case for how you might do that in the life of the church. And by the way, at Omaha Bible Church, all of our snake handling is done in the basement. So, if you're looking for the snakes, why do I say that? <laughs> because we need a little levity now and then, I guess. I love verse 13. I love verse 13 for our deacons. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. If you're a friend or a spouse of someone who is a deacon at Omaha Bible Church, that, that, that's just good, good ministry fodder for you. Now, I want you to appreciate it even more by seeing, in a sense, how outlandish it is. Let's look at it again, where it says, for those who serve well. Okay, so those who are servants. On a whole nother level, who here wants to be a servant? Who here wants to be a water boy? I like touchdowns. Water boy? I don't think so. I'm still in counseling over the fact that I was a lineman my whole life. A center at that, man. Come on. I don't want to be a center. Nobody wants to be a servant. No fame, no glory. I don't want to be a servant. And it gets worse in a sense. Verse 13, For those who serve well... As servants. <laughs> because that's what deacon is. Servant. I mean, there's something in me that goes, I don't think I want to, I don't want to be that guy. By the way, it's kind of interesting. Once in a while, I'll run into one of you outside of this place, maybe at a restaurant, and you'll introduce me to your coworkers, um, who you're having lunch with or whatever, and it's happened multiple times, and, and, and you'll say, and I'm thankful you introduced me. Thank you for including me. Um, and you'll say, oh, this is Pat. He's my minister. And I'm thankful to be your minister. But let's just take it out of context, and let's assume worse motives from you, and I know we shouldn't do that, but just to be a little funny. Hi, y'all, yeah, this is Pat. He's my servant. Because that's what minister means. Oh, thank you. Would you like me to polish your shoes? Get your car? Could I get you a refill? <laughs> You're like, who, who would you introduce as your servant? Oh, this is Pat. He's my servant. Yes, sir. No, sir. What would you like me to get for you, sir? I mean, now I'm making a little bit of a, a silliness out of this because actually, you know what? I should be your servant. I should serve you as we're called to serve one another. 
I'd like to introduce you to my friends as my servant because you are my servant if you're a Christian. Because we serve in the body of Christ for the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. It's a great title, but we have to remember it's in a Christian context that it's a great title. And here he's reminding deacons of the great context. Hey, you know what? If you serve well as a deacon, that's a great status for you as you serve in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, stop and think about it. Who's the ultimate uber deacon? Who's the ultimate servant? It's Christ himself. What does Jesus say in that watershed passage in Mark chapter 10, verse 45? I did not come here to be served. I came here to deke. I came here to, to serve in the ultimate deking of all, to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And we say, that's the gospel. Yes. And it teaches us something about what it means to be a deacon. I love the way it all kind of converges and we think about it. our priority number one is the proclamation of the gospel as a church. We all need to own that. And that's what we do. We have proclamation ministry. And then we say, but not only that, we have other needs that come as a result of that proclamation. And what are we going to do there? Well, it's a gospel-like kind of ministry because Jesus himself, who, who is the good one of the good news, served and gave himself. So it all is complimentary and it all works together. But when it's not so fun and exciting, you've got to remember, you're holding the office and position if you're a deacon of that kind of Christ-like office. It's good. It's really good. It doesn't seem so glorious, but it's Christ-like. It's meant to encourage us and, and, and help us. I'm excited for what God might have for us. We have 10 individuals who've gone through all the testing process and all the ins and the outs. And um, we hope to do this every year, have a more formalized, this is when we're going to look at the deacons so it doesn't just pass, you know, 15 years later kind of thing. Um, and you might recommend someone, you might say, I aspire to that, I'm interested. But we have 10 individuals uh, who seem to meet the qualifications. The reason that makes me lick my spiritual chops is because I know that's related to and complementary to gospel furthering.